Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting November 28th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, neuroscientist Michael Gazaniga talks about the relationship between brain science and the law. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. Michael Gazaniga is professor of psychology at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and directs that institution's SAGE Center for the Study of the Mind. He's the founder and editor-in-chief emeritus of the Journal of Cognitive Neuroscience. Gazaniga is the author of numerous books, including The Ethical Brain, and he's a member of the President's Council on Bioethics, which we also talk about toward the end of the interview. In October, the MacArthur Foundation initiated what they're calling the Law and Neuroscience Project. It's an effort to try to help integrate new developments in neuroscience into the legal system. Former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor is the honorary chair, and Gazaniga is the director and principal investigator. I caught up with him at the official announcement last month. We spoke in the Daniel Patrick Moynihan U.S. Courthouse in New York City. Dr. Gazaniga, great to talk to you today. Hi, Steve. Tell us about uh, the connection between neuroscience and the law. It's something that we're all a little bit familiar with, with the idea of lie detectors. Exactly. That's one of the problems that we're going to address and, and examine very carefully. But overall, I, I think there, people can fairly ask, why now? What, why has this come up so intently in the last few years? And I really think it, it's traceable to 15 or 20 years ago when human neurobiology really came under the microscope. Uh, with the development of brain imaging technologies, not only functional imaging, positron emission, tomography, and other kind of imaging, electrical recording kind of imaging, we are, we now have a full, uh, full-blown human neuroscience and we're beginning to, uh, examine questions that were never examined before. So people now have thoughts about, uh, what the moral stance of a, of, of a human should be, how much of that is built in, how much of that is a function of cultural learning. And, uh, and people are beginning to examine, um, uh, questions that have to do with uh, the real nature of pain. Uh, how can you distinguish physical uh, pain from psychological pain. That kind of uh, elucidation of that mechanism is probably going to be very helpful, not only in in the criminal cases, but also in uh, civil cases of uh, people judging of whether someone was in an automobile accident and complaining falsely of a pain and so forth. So, so there's all kinds of things that just a few years ago simply were not examined in a scientific sense. And to have a, a real uh, scientific methods available for people to try to understand these processes is uh, very powerful. And your lie detection is a perfect example. Let's talk about, for example, functional MRI. Right. Now, with functional MRI, we, we sort of see the brain doing something. Right. We see the brain being active in a particular way under a particular set of circumstances. Yes. How does that relate to the kinds of of mental states that would come up in a courtroom, and how do we know that we're actually looking at what we think we're looking at necessarily? Uh, you know, the can, can you just do a brain scan and say, "No, this person's guilty." That's obviously not something we can do. Right. Exactly. You put your finger on the sixty-four dollar question to really use brain imaging in the sense of uh, saying that brain image suggests this kind of mental state is not there yet by a long shot. And uh, and when that, if that ever uh, arises, 
The question will be, will that be a violation of your personal rights? Is that something uh, that one would uh, call the Fifth Amendment on? Interestingly, the Fifth Amendment uh, is something that is used for verbal self-incrimination. You you might think, well, DNA is incredibly incriminating. Why why is that allowed? Well, physical evidence is allowed, uh, but not verbal incrimination. So verbal is mental. Uh, are we going to uh, have all these new capacities develop out of the scientific end? And people, then the courts are going to have to decide, are these, are, should we call this physical evidence, even though it's the substrate of mind? Or is this mental evidence and therefore uh, not usable in a court of law? Those are all uh, uncharted waters because the science of the brain enabling mental life isn't quite there yet. So it's almost inevitable that we're going to see a Supreme Court case that's going to look at some kind of uh, brain imaging and decide whether it's allowable under the Fifth Amendment. That would be uh, uh, <laughs> my interpretation. I have to go to uh, my co-directors on this new project, and uh, they, they could straighten me out on that, but that, that is where I see it going. Let's talk about the new project. The yeah. MacArthur Foundation got involved in this because it's seeing that these kinds of pieces of evidence are going to wind up in courtrooms. So we're trying to establish parameters before that happens too much. It's happened already. Right. It's it's already happened, uh, and the, that's a good way of putting it. What this project's all about is looking both for the abuses and the future uses of neuroscience because it can be abusefully used. It, the claims can be too great. Uh, to give you a concrete example, there's going to be the problem that uh, Jones kills somebody, and it turns out Jones has a brain lesion in the frontal lobe. Uh, it, does that make him exculpable? Is that a, a way of getting him off? And uh, that kind of defense is widely uh, used and sometimes admitted in, into court. Now, the problem, the underlying problem with that defense is that there are lots of people with that kind of brain lesion, and they don't kill people. So the specificity of the observation is not great uh, at this point, even though it seems right. You can say that that kind of lesion does tend to uh, lead people to certain kinds of bizarre behaviors. But there's a lots of things controlling uh, ultimate action of a human being. And there's lots of ways a tendency can be blocked by other rule learning that has gone on in the, in the person and so forth. So that's why... Just having a brain lesion isn't a switch that turns you on to being violent or, or abusive or, or whatever. That's why it's a very complex question. And that's one of the things that uh, this project is going to examine carefully. And the brain lesion would be one of the grosser examples. Ultimately, we're, we hope that we'll be able, with brain scans, to look at very kind of fine-tuned levels of, of brain function that's right. that's within right. the normal range. Exactly. Uh Examination of psychopathy. Uh, is this person, uh, seem to be immune to knowing right from wrong? Can we tell that through brain imaging? And then this other distinction. Well, maybe they know right from wrong cognitively, but do they appreciate right and wrong? And those kinds of distinctions. Maybe they, those will all are things on, on the pike, uh, down the pike here that are going to be really nailed down and being able to uh, to be assessed and claimed and, and the like. So now proponents of uh, using brain scanning techniques are saying we can get a more accurate justice uh, with less bias about guilt and, and lies and, 
and uh, they they also think we might even be able to predict criminal behavior. Now that's a whole. I mean, now you're in the Spielberg movie Minority Report, right? So, right. what what is what are some of the concrete dangers that you see with people uh, going too far with the the uh, thinking about potential applications of this kind of technology? So much of neuroscience and cognition, neuroscience and behavior, is correlative in nature. This sort of thing correlates with that sort of thing. And it is not, uh, uh, in a reflexive sort of way, causal. And so when you have a particular biologic state that you've identified uh, in with new brain imaging, uh, does that necessarily mean that person is holding a particular thought or has a certain intention uh, or not? And... That, that's just a, that is, that is another central question that has to be examined and one of the things this project will do. Because there's going to be increasing pressure from, uh, people fascinated with brain imaging to use this kind of information in a court. And when it's, when it's appropriate, it's going to be terrific. When it's inappropriate, as I've said, it, it just shouldn't be there. And there should be someone, uh, uh, trying to sort this out and making assessments about it. And that's the purpose of this, is to figure out when it's appropriate and when it's not appropriate. Exactly. Talk about the three groups that are the first uh, things that are going to be involved in this launch. There's addiction, brain abnormalities, and decision-making. What does all that mean? Right. So the there there are three three different networks. The addiction network is is going to tackle this whole question of of what what addiction really is, uh, what is the brain science of addiction, and if addiction draws you towards compulsively towards uh, uh, behaviors that find wind up in criminal action, how should we think about those people who uh, commit crimes uh, and so forth? Sorting all that out is a very very complex and delicate issue for obvious reasons. Uh, the the second network is looking at normal decision making decision making gone wrong. So the prisons are full of people who who aren't in pathological groups. They're not psychopaths. They're not uh, brain damaged. They're not uh, have this problem or that. They're just made some really bum decisions. What are the things that influence that? Why was this poor judgment manifest in particular instances? Uh, and they're also going to be looking at bias and how through the judicial pro- process uh, bias occurs. So whether it's in the courtroom, whether it's in the selection of a jury, uh, uh, there's a host of uh, host of things, and that is now studied. Of course, it's been studied for years by cognitive psychologists, but now there's a there's a brain imaging uh, component to it that's very interesting. And then finally, the third network is looking at this issue of diminished responsibility, diminished brains, that we we've called it, leading to uh, criminal behavior, and how exculpable should that fact be? And we're going to be examining that very carefully and, and trying to be specific about how and when that kind of defense should be used and when it should be disallowed. Do you, uh, do you think it's possible that eventually, in addition to courtroom testimony, you're going to see brain scans that are put forth as evidence to show the, uh, the state of maybe the defendant or maybe even the members of the jury? It's, uh, scary. Uh, and I wouldn't want to, uh, Forecast, uh, because I think this is to, to come back to this. I think this is the time to look at all this stuff and to see what we know, to see what we might know, and to see how it should influence uh, 
law and the judicial process. Do you think there's a parallel to DNA? I mean, the reason DNA is so powerful is because it's virtually the raw truth. It's just the deal. And uh, brain science studies are a long way from that kind of certainty. And so uh, I think that uh, I think it, it it will there'll be a lot more critical need for research to really try to nail some of this stuff down. I can see uh, 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 most claims now being rather easily taken care of in uh, by uh, good lawyering. Right. It's still better to have a good lawyer than a good neuroscientist. (laughs) Is this a two-way street? Are there uh, is the neuroscience at all being informed by things that are going on in the courtroom? Well, that is the a, a very important goal of this project. This project, to paint the picture, has four four types of people on it: the neuroscientists, the lawyers, the judges, and philosophers who have looked at these questions of law and society and and where law comes from for years. And uh, one of the goals is to. Uh, over the course of this first year is for the lawyers and the neuroscientists to come down and to come and meet together and to ascertain and sharpen up questions for experimental, uh, for our experimental program, actual empirical work, which starts in years two and three. So yes, there will be a very uh, active exchange. Uh, a neuroscientist can think of an interesting experiment and the lawyer might say, well, that's very interesting, but that'll never have an impact on, on legal reasoning. So if you make this adjustment and you get this result versus that result, that would have an impact conceivably. So it's going to be a, a, it's going to be a whole new sort of interaction. It's really interesting stuff, you know. You uh, but you you made me think of there, there's an old an old axiom that a good lawyer knows the law, but a great lawyer knows the judge, <laughs> and uh, maybe a, in the future a, a, a really great lawyer. Knows the judge and the uh, fMRI That's right. technician. That's right. Well, there's any number of law schools now in the country that are beginning to, in their th- third year of their of the legal training, uh, have neuroscience and law courses. They 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 already see that this is an important issue. And I have several friends who are, are involved in these processes, including one of our co-directors, uh, setting up a whole program at, at Vanderbilt University Law School. Which makes sense because in our legal system, intent is such an important right. part of of the uh, right. the jurisprudence that we we sort of have to go in this direction, right? To figure out what people's intent was, right? Exactly, and there there are new studies, uh, fMRI. Uh, there's studies in the animal literature that uh, prior to the activity of uh, the actual behavior of, of a person or in the animal experiment of the monkey. Uh, the neuroscientist can tell what the person is going to do in a choice situation. It's a laboratory sort of situation, of course. But as these things move into more realistic, naturalistic kinds of decisions, uh, if, if someone can actually judge what you're going to do before you actually do it, and they know and you don't, but that sort of thing, uh, that's going to be powerful uh, information contributing to the notion that when someone does something, they're going to take the defense of my brain did it, not me. Right. It was my brain and not me. Right. It's really interesting. Well, anybody listening who's working on their doctorate in neuroscience, you go get yourself a law degree after that, and you'll, pre- you'll be set for the rest of your life. <laughs> Since I have you here, 
Uh, let's let's switch gears, and uh, I'd like to just take a couple of minutes to talk about the uh, the president's bioethics commission, yeah. of which you're a member. Yeah. And uh, it was in the news quite a lot about three years ago. Some of the members were resigning, and uh, there was a lot of uh, Sturm und Drang within the commission mm-hmm. uh, about the direction of the commission, uh, in large part due to stem cell research. Right. Right. So what's what's the current uh, attitude within the commission about the work that's being done you know is everybody playing nice and getting along right now well there's been quite a change in the membership of the committee uh the original committee uh, uh really was divided uh and but i must hasten to say the majority came out with the view that they did not have a moral problem with stem cell re- research uh, they had varying degrees of willingness to enact it, but they, they did not have a moral problem with it. But a lot of those people have uh, gone on, resigned, and been replaced, and the complexion of the com- committee now is quite different. And they've taken on different topics, and uh, we've taken on the issues of organ transplantation, the issues surrounding death and dying, and neurologic death, and how should it be defined. And and there's there, there are more questions on the horizon. So was that a result of the Shivo case? Did that really bring that to the forefront? It, it might have been. I, I don't know the. Uh, I, I don't know how it actually came up, but it's come up in lots of circles. Last year, exactly just a year, a little over a year ago, the Pontifical Academy of Science held a, a national in, international meeting in the Vatican, wanting to re-examine uh, the question of brain death and the definition of it for for uh, uh, organ transplantation. A lot of people don't know, actually, that uh, when organ transplantation was started, uh, it was actually Pope Pius XII that gave it the green light. He said it was fine. If someone is basically declared brain dead, then uh, use the reasoning that no greater love can a person give than life to another, so that he gave the green light and organ transplantation uh, started. The Catholic moral philosophy was was very uh, important in pushing this forward. Mm Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, uh, Pope Benedict, the new Pope, uh, had this, wanted this re-examined and they just came out with a report which is quite fascinating to read. And I think it was pretty much determined that the current, uh, the current way of judging brain death and brain death is death is, is the point, uh, is acceptable. And I don't think that there are going to be any changes in the issue. And I know the, President's Commission is just finishing a report where they pretty much come to the same conclusion. So uh, stem cells are pretty much quiescent right now. That's not a topic that the... Uh... It's, it's not a topic that the Bioethics Council is examining. Uh, it has gone forward in so many other venues uh, from from, uh, from the states and the uh, California state and other countries. And, and in the upcoming election, I see that... Uh, uh, the, some of the leading candidates are always already staking out their position that they'll reverse the current ban on embryonic stem cell research uh, from from government funding. It's, of course, it's legal from private funding. Right. Uh, so uh, I think it's kind of past the committee's uh, jurisdiction now. Or not? They they just are not tackling the question. It's out in the public. They we've had our say, and mm-hmm. it's now time for others to say. All right, so you have uh, brain death and organ transplantation. What what else is actively under consideration right now? At the last council meeting, which I had to miss, 
there was quite an impassioned plea to put on the general, uh, the uh, agenda, uh, the national health care issue. Is it moral not to provide health care for every American? Very interesting. That's a very different kind of yeah. question uh, from what the very Ethics different. Commission usually considers. And, and it reflects the, who's the new chair. The new chair comes out of traditional medical ethics at Pellegrino. And the previous chair, of course, Leon Kask, uh, came at it from a more of, of a philosophical background and, and the like. So, so, uh, that is being discussed as being one of the things that, uh, that will be examined in the remaining two years of the commission. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I appreciate your time and, uh, I hope we get to, to talk about some of these things as they develop over the coming years. Good to see you, Steve. For more on the Law and Neuroscience Project, just go to www.lawandneurosciencesproject.org. And you can find a podcast of the entire panel discussion that accompanied the official announcement, as well as brief video highlights at tinyurl.com slash 292RQ3. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, even six-month-old babies can tell helpers from hinderers. Story two, up to half of all nanotechnology companies don't actually do any nanotechnology. Story three, brown bears from 20,000 years ago had a different genetic makeup from today's brown bears, and the ice sheets of the last ice age probably drove the genetic changes. And story four, a sea scorpion that lived at least 255 million years ago was bigger than a grown man. Time's up. Story one is true. Tests on six-month-olds found that they could tell who was trying to help a third party and who was getting in the way of that third party, and they preferred to play with the helper. For more, check out the November 26th episode of the Daily Scientific American Podcast, 60 Second Science. Story two is true. A recent Ph.D. thesis finds that half of all companies labeling themselves as nanotech are engaged in activities that are not truly nanotech. Many are doing what they always did but are now calling themselves nanotech to appear state-of-the-art, and only a small part of the revenues for companies that actually do nanotech are coming from their nanotech ventures. The doctoral thesis was presented at the Helsinki School of Economics. And story four is true. The recently discovered fossil remains of a sea scorpion show that it was bigger than a grown man, and I'm not talking about Peter Dinklage. According to research published online in the Royal Society's journal Biology Letters, the scorpion would have been close to eight feet long. All of which means that story three about the Ice Age driving the genetic changes in brown bears of the last 20,000 years is totally bogus because research published in the journal Molecular Ecology shows that the gene changes are much more likely the result of hunting and other human activities in the bear's environment. Time will tell if humans are indeed smarter than the average bear. Well, that's it for this edition of the weekly Scientific American podcast. You can write to us at podcast.siam.com and check out numerous features at our brand new redesigned siam.com website, including news stories, the blog, and the Siam community. For Science Talk, a weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.